Consider the photograph of Grozny, Chechnya, taken in 1995 after repeated bombing campaigns by Russian forces. I ran across this in 2001 after I became intrigued by news reports of female suicide bombers in Chechnya and Russia. I didn't know anything about the Russian-Chechen wars, and looking at the photograph, I felt as if I had been carried back to Dresden at the end of World War II. The scene carried for me a particular shock, since I was viewing it just after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. At the same time, I was also reading and thinking about some lines very early on in the Old English poem Beowulf, when the poet tells the reader, long before Beowulf travels to the great Danish hall, Heorot, in order to save it from Grendel, that the hall awaited hostile flames, and it was not long yet before the sword hate of those sworn to each other should awaken after the war. So, long before Beowulf hurries over the sea to rescue the Danes from their monstrous enemies, the great hall is already destroyed, and Beowulf travels over the waves to a future that is already history, and the main marker of that history is the shadow of a ruin, the bare outlines of which body forth the ashen memory of a once golden kingdom. It was as if the Beowulf poet was trying to tell us that in every image of a glittering city lies coiled the architecture of its apocalypse, and the lines speak as well to what feels to me like a fundamental element of human history, constant war. It is not the monstrous other who comes seeking our destruction in the end. It is ourselves. Consider also this photograph of two women and one child walking through what is left of the streets of Grozny in 1995. In my mind, this picture haunts our own future. Contained in the picture of every modern city is this negative image of its inevitable destruction. And it also recalls us to the past of so many other cities, fictional and real, destroyed or almost destroyed in war. Troy, Carthage, Alexandria, Rome, London, Dresden. Although the photographer chose to center his three subjects within the frame of his lens, which is also the frame of the present moment when he and his subjects came together, we cannot help but notice they are moving from one end of the street to the other. They are always arriving from the past while always disappearing into the future. And while the witness, who is also an artist, may wish to wrest his figures from the flow of time, or even to stop time, there is a restless movement here that might reveal to us, if we are willing to see it, the petrified unrest of history's ruins. From December 1994 through January 95, and again in August 1996, Russia launched bombing campaigns against Grozny as part of its war against Chechen separatists. The air raids and artillery bombardments were so devastating that in one sense, the city of Grozny ceased to exist, leaving behind only rubble, about 100,000 dead, and over half a million displaced persons. A siege of the city in a second war from late 99 through February 2000 left Grozny, according to the United Nations, the most destroyed city on earth. And yet, when the city of Grozny vanished, it did so without our notice of it. Aside from the attention Grozny received from a few brave journalists, some of whom gave their lives, 
and from certain human rights organizations, the plight of the city and its citizens never really seized the public imagination. And I would even argue that it forms a kind of blank spot in the late 20th century historical memory. This is especially distressing when we understand that the Russian government took advantage of the climate of fear after 9-11 to engage in systematic sweep operations and nighttime raids that resulted in the disappearance of thousands of Chechens, many of whom turned up later in mass unmarked graves. At the same time, Russia kept Grozny unreconstructed for almost a decade as a lesson to the Chechen rebels. Grozny has since been rebuilt and at a frenetic, almost manic pace, which only adds to the blankness of our memory. Consider all of the unmarked graves and potter's fields of history, and also this photograph of a vandalized Jewish cemetery in Warsaw, Poland, taken in 2008. At the same time that some of us might struggle to approach any of these scenes, now irrevocably past, that should have commanded our concerted attention, human rights discourses within the university have been disturbed by the weakening status of terms such as the human and universal. And there has been a significant turn as well beyond the human or the liberal humanist subject in many of our disciplines. This poses a great challenge to those of us concerned with the future of humanistic letters and with the human rights discourses founded upon those letters, especially when, as John Caputo has written, we are in the fix that cannot say we, and yet the obligation of me to you and both of us to others is all around us, on every side, tugging at our sleeves. We're situated at a point of crisis with regard to how to formulate and put into practice international human rights or any concept of justice at a time when the category of the human itself is viewed as mainly fictitious and increasingly questionable as a basis for rights and justice. But the question has to be asked, was the category of the human ever stable to begin with? This raises the question of history and deep history at that. Many of the current discourses on posthumanism focus on the ways in which new findings in fields such as biotechnology have destabilized the category human, leading to some distress over what might be called the loss of human authority and dignity. And we might call this the futurist dystopic view. Other discourses have concentrated on a theoretical reform of a humanistic philosophical tradition from the Renaissance through modernity believed to have produced an oppressive history of possessive subjectivism. And in some circles, primarily scientific, but also cultural studies, the same post-human turn has led to some pretty giddy discourses over all the ways in which we, whatever we might be, might finally be able to escape or somehow make less vulnerable and more pleasurable and multi-extensive the trap of our all-too-human bodies. We might call this the futurist utopic or transhumanist view. According to Catherine Hales, the humanities have always been concerned with shifting definitions of the human. So the human has always been a kind of contested term. But what the idea of the post-human evokes that is not unique to the 20th century, but became much more highly energized in the 20th century, is the idea that technology has progressed to the point where it has the capability of fundamentally transforming the conditions of human life. As Hales elaborates, even though one of the deep ideas of the humanities is that the past is an enduring reservoir of value, 
and that it pays us deep dividends to know the past, there are just some things that have never happened before in human history. It has to be admitted, sure, in most post-humanist discourses, whether in the humanities or the sciences, the scholarship of those who work in pre-modern studies is not considered relevant to the discussion, especially if we take the idea that things are happening now that have never happened before, for which all prior thought simply doesn't prepare us. And yet, at the same time, the scholarship of those who work in pre-modern periods is definitively concerned with issues of the human and the animal, self and subjectivity, cognition and theory of mind, singularity and networks, corporality and embodiment, bare life, flesh versus machine, and so on. So, for example, in his book Medieval Identity Machines, Jeffrey Cohen argues that the Middle Ages were already post-human. It was a period fascinated with composite bodies and with transformations between the human and the inhuman. And human identity in this period, despite the best efforts of those who possessed it to assert otherwise, was unstable, contingent, hybrid, discontinuous. In all times and places, as Cohen has also argued, being human really means endlessly becoming human. It means holding an uncertain identity, an identity that is always slipping away from us. This resonates, I really believe, with Hales's own idea that human subjectivity emerges from and is integrated into a chaotic world rather than occupying a position of mastery and control removed from it. In other words, we have never been human or we have always been post-human, and if we are to have any hope of negotiating human rights issues in the 21st century, we would do well to consider how heavily the past weighs upon the future, all the ways in which, historically, the human, however we define that, has emerged into view and contested for something. And this is especially important when the future, as Cohen has written, is always embodied in what seems wholly new. And we have great need now to think the human in more capacious terms. We might also keep in mind what the philosopher Charles Taylor has told us, that there is never just one modernity, but rather multiple modernities. Multiple modernities, moreover, that are predicated upon the self-understandings that have been constitutive of a plurality of different social groups that have each modernized in their own way. There are certain features and institutions of modernity that become inescapable, of course. The bureaucratic state, secularism, the market economy, science, technology, and the like. But each is inflected by certain local particularities, each moving at their own speed. This calls to mind Fernand Brodel's important insight that whether it is a question of the past or of the present, a clear awareness of this plurality of social time is indispensable to the communal methodology of the human sciences. There are many different nows existing alongside each other, and within each of them, multiple paths. And the figure of the human is inextricably bound up with these multiple paths, paths in which, I would say, the human never was itself. Much current scholarship in medieval studies has been contributing important insights to the ways in which temporality is decidedly not wired in the straight ways we often imagine it is. And as the medievalist Carolyn Dinshaw has written, chronology, the timeline of events, clock time, these do not tell us everything, or in many cases even very much, about human experience. 
Not only is time not a smooth stream, but it is also not the same for everyone. We might reflect, those living in Grozny, Chechnya in the 1990s inhabited a very different world than those living in Manhattan at the same time. And this reminds me of the words of Ernst Bloch, not all people exist in the same now. They do so only externally through the fact that they can be seen today, but they are thereby not yet living at the same time with the others. And yet, for all of our separateness, both in time and space, I'm hoping that some insight into what has always been our post-human condition may help us to see, as Judith Butler has written, that my own foreignness to myself is the source of my ethical connection with others. And I cannot muster the we except by finding the way in which I am tied to the you, by trying to translate but finding that my own language must break up and yield if I am to know you. This is how the human comes into being again and again as that which we have yet to know. This raises the question of sociality and community and our obligations to others precisely at the moment we have not yet grasped and are still struggling to grasp the terms of our humanness, which, of course, historically, we have wanted to have a hold of in order to understand who it is we are obliged to. And we have to ask, in the words of medievalist Carrie Howie, whether or not it is still possible to speak this fragile pronoun we across temporal, spatial, and ontological difference. And we approach our dilemma at a time when, as Bill Reddings pretty convincingly argued, I think, in the University in Ruins, that the university has, for the most part, lost its cultural function. It's become a transnational bureaucratic corporation, one where the centrality of the traditional humanistic disciplines to the life of the university is no longer assured. For all of its elegant and enduring architecture, the university is a ruined institution, one that has lost its historical raison d'etre. But the loss of the university's cultural function also opens up a vital space in which it might be possible to think the notion of community otherwise without recourse to notions of unity or consensus. This is a space, moreover, where the university, in Redding's words, becomes one site among others where the question of being together is raised raised with an urgency that proceeds from the absence of the institutional forms such as the nation-state, which have historically served to mask that question. In Redding's ruined university, thinking would be a shared process without identity or unity, and instead of a new interdisciplinary space that would reunify the increasingly fragmented disciplines, there would be a continually shifting disciplinary structure and this would hold open the question of whether and how our thoughts fit together. We have much still to learn about what it means to be and to have always been post-human, and I want to make the plea that much work in medieval studies is contributing important historical insights into the ways in which the human is and always has been ever mobile, unbounded, pluralistic, creatively anachronistic, and open-ended. While it also in the words of medievalist David Gary Shaw, serves as a highly localized site of awareness. There are many texts 
from the Middle Ages that offer important critical resources to us, not only for formulating what we mean when we invoke or move toward the posthuman, but also for developing new vocabularies that might help us to grasp the emancipatory potential on both personal and social levels of more enworlded and intersubjective senses of being, human and otherwise. We always arrive belatedly to the sites of human destruction, whether fictional or real, to the burning timbers of Hayarat or to the rubble of Grozny. And it may be that the so-called project of human and other rights is one that always comes after, that arrives too late, and yet must still make repair, and hopefully with as much depth of historical consciousness as possible, wherever that might lead us. And I wonder if I might ask, perhaps provocatively, if a sustained intellectual and even social scientific consideration of love might have something to do with our way forward. I am recalled finally to Jeanette Winterson's recent novel, The Stone Gods, which interweaves several narratives that take place alternately between the beginning of the First Ice Age, 18th century Easter Island, a near-future post-apocalyptic London, and the bio-enhanced far future of planet Orbis. Each narrative concerns one primary character, Billy Crusoe, who is in love with a robo-sapiens named Spike, whose body consists of only her head. Near the end of the novel, just before Billy is shot to death by android soldiers in an edge city built on the edge of a junkyard, she wonders, a quantum universe, neither random nor determined, a universe of potentialities waiting for an intervention to affect the outcome. Love is an intervention. With the scholar of religious studies, Thomas Carlson, we might hope to agree that the task now is to see the incomprehensibility of the human as a function of its inextricable ties, both mortal and natal, with the world and to see that world, itself no more captured or conquered by picture than is the human, as one in which and for which love opens rather than closes possibility and its multiple temporalities. <laughs>